Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Joining in today by Joshua Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. I would judge you excited by the prospect of the Austin FC season opener. I mean, you're playing it cool, but... I've been on a slow uh, increase in my intensity and excitement, and I can barely keep it inside now. We're that close. We're that close. You're doing a pretty good job. I'm trying. So... I'm going to take Friday off, though. Oh, yeah, I think that's fair. No, you know, no, you got to really warm up. You want to rest up for the big festivities on Saturday. Exactly. Here. Um, so, so last week was a big week for getting a few of the final early stage indicators of the legislative agenda in Texas in place. I, I like the way you put it. You said, you said to me earlier, in the, you know, it's, it's, it's the end of the beginning. Yeah. And I, and I think that that, you know, I was just looking at the uh, House Appropriations, so one of the subcommittee meetings, one on higher on education, on the education article, education article before we came in and, um, you know, certainly feels like, you know, it's it's happening now. But mm-hmm. again, I mean, to, to be a little more direct about it, uh, you know, early last week, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick unveiled Senate bills one through 30, which I think we talked about a little bit in a kind of de, fa- in a de facto declaration yeah. of his priorities that followed up on his previous declaration of his priorities in a press conference right. uh, several weeks ago. Um you know, uh, follow that, and and of course we we commented on this last week. Not coincidentally, on Thursday the governor delivered his uh, state of the state address, and this is really where an, you know another big shoe dropped, and yeah. that the governor unveiled his seven emergency items Br- briskly. I would yeah. say, and you know, thank yeah, you. I mean I, that, that that was a fast thirty minutes. It was a fast, right? yeah, no, twenty eight or however long it was. As, as someone with kids who works during the day in the same space and then has to like carve out time in the evening to watch something like this, right. you know, a nice 30 minute speech appreciated. Yeah, no, I think you appreciate it in real time. I mean, you texting yeah, going, that was brisk. <laughs> yeah. you know, so, and I, and I think that's right. So, you know, and, and of course, as I, I think we discussed last week, I mean, the, you know, this is one of the, you know, the points where the governor has, uh, you know, at least some leverage in the process and it's an important public declaration. Mm-hmm. I don't think Friday morning, Texans, you know, from one side of the state or the other were sitting at the breakfast table and spe- talking to their families about the seven emergency items the the, the, the governor declared. But, you know, it, it it is designed to have some resonance with some quarters of public yeah. opinion, which we'll get into. And, and, and more importantly, it's signaling to the legislature, you know, in addition to, as we, again, as we discussed last week, you know, the constitutional provision that allows the the legislature to pass bills on these seven items before the 60-day limit. Now, I doubt we'll see that, but we'll see. Yeah, and I'd add to that, there's a little bit of CYA here too, which is, you know, at this point, you know, for the governor in particular, but even for the lieutenant governor, they can both now point to a list and say, at the beginning of the session, right. I said this. And whether it happens or not, they can point back to that as a, as a point to say that it was, it was a priority of theirs. Right. We communicated. We communicated with each other. We communicated to the legislature. We communicated to the public. Right. Um. You know, and that is a, a, a kind of, um, you know, that reflects experience, shall we say, mm-hmm. you know, in the sense of, you know, there have been governors in the past who have been dinged for not communicating enough with the legislature. It's a it's a common mistake of, of you I know, mean, first-term governors I mean, been, often. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to put in parentheses, some could say that about this governor at yeah. certain points in time. Yeah, and, and we're, you know, but we're, I think we're pretty Pre-K, well beyond uh, that. But we are, I, we are very well beyond that. Right, and, 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 and to be fair to... You know, the executives in this case, you know, it, it's common for legislators to say, well, you know, they didn't cl- clearly yeah. convey their their wishes. And then the governor says, well, we did. And then there's a, you know, we did, we didn't, et cetera, et cetera. And it's fair to say this is a very public communication. 
you know, a lot of communication goes on behind the scenes in ways right. that the public doesn't seem would. And I think we talked about this last week too. The governor's staff fanned out across the legislature. So that said, um, the seven items that the governor laid out in the order that he laid them out, and I, I feel like I may have even thought about this too much, but the, <laughs> I, I do think that the there's something about what gets pride of place. Although some of this, I think, was also for narrative flow in the speech itself, mm-hmm. frankly. But um, so those seven items, cutting, and, and this these are verbatim from the speech, cutting property taxes, end COVID restrictions forever, forever. education reform, education freedom, Oop, yeah, making schools safer, ending revolving door bail, doing more to secure our border, and addressing the fentanyl crisis. Um, you know, and I think, you know. I like, I like that doing more in there. <laughs> Just, you know, yeah. Um, but anyway, sorry. Well, we'll I mean, there. you know, they, they're going to spend a little more. Yeah. So, you know, that may just be inflation. Um, but we're already so, doing so much. So. so, you know, so the questions for us to kick around today, I think, do we know more about the priorities and the shape of the legislative agenda than we did a week ago mm-hmm. as we look at all this? And, and how do the items that are leading candidates for attention from the legislature align with public opinion as we know it, our usual thing? And and there's a, a, blo- a pretty extensive blog post that went up yesterday that covers some of this ground. We, you know, we're, we'll add and subtract a little bit on this. So um, I would urge people to go to texaspolitics.utexas.edu, follow the blog site, follow the link to the blog, and it'll, it'll be at the top of the pile or pretty close when you get there. So, you know, let... You know, let, let's step back before we go through these, and we'll just go through each of them fairly quickly to get to some takeaways. But, you know, I am curious, in this brisk speech, what's your what's your gut response to do we know more about the priorities and shape of the agenda than we did a week ago? Um, My gut response would be to say, no, not really. I yeah. mean, I, you know, I, I, I'd like to say, I mean, part of it is I think, you know, my own my own ego and like, you know, my place is like an alleged so-called quasi or real expert in this makes me think I should come away with some kind of like, oh no, like we know all, you know, and it's like, right. and I think, you know, to the sort of the discussions that we've had and the way that I've been thinking about it, I mean, I think this like, you know, might provide some more degrees of clarity, right? right? But I don't think that there's a, a major shift in the understanding. Of- yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of thought that, you know, there were no you know, big, you know, news alerts in here. I mean, you know, to your point, I think, you know, this is a sort of thing where, you know, (laughs) this is the second reading. And so when you do sort of parse these things, it does make you think about the pride of place given to different things, the kind of, I mean, and then here's the thing, and every piece of language that's used is chosen very specifically in a case like this. And so it does make you kind of start to want to pick apart, you know, the pieces here and kind of think about it. But I mean, to me, I sort of, I guess I would say, you know, it it really, it's, the speech in a lot of ways was bookended by the property taxes and the border. And those were the two things I, right. not knowing anything else, those are priority pieces. I think the fact that you see those in the bookends just reaffirms that, you know, and then the middle is kind of squishy, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit, it's a little bit squishier. And so, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think what I would say is, I mean, it's inherently squishier on a, on a list of seven yeah. items on it. But I also think, you know. It's fair to say that there are some subtleties here. Yeah. Right? So let's start with something. Let's go through the list kind of quickly. Yeah. We'll start with something not subtle. Right. Not a surprise. You know, property taxes were at the top of the list. Um, they weren't, you know, it wasn't the number one item, as I recall, on the lieutenant governor's list, but it was near the top. Yeah. And and I, I think there's, you know, I, I think I put together like a sort of tongue-in-cheek bingo card for yeah. – social media for this and property taxes was kind of the free square in the middle. Right. Exactly. Easy. Right. In which, you know, you know, I mean, instead of just giving people the free square, it's all, but, you know, um, you know, a lot of campaign uh, promises, uh, the governor sort of laid out a 15, the $15 billion number, which is interestingly consistent with what he had declared earlier. I mean, back when we were expecting this, the, the, the budget, uh, uh, remainder, the, the, the surplus, the budget surplus to be, you know, about $27 billion right. before the, the latest, uh, uh, increase the delivered from the controller. The governor said that, you know, his line in the sand more or less was that the state should spend half. Right. So now that we're at 32, seven, he's actually, you know, kind of picked a, a middle point. Yeah. Right. Right. At 15 he's billion. He's already negotiating. Right. Which was interesting enough. And, and, 
you know, we can wave at public opinion. And I think there's something interesting in this. I mean, I, I think that the public opinion patterns in property taxes are kind of interesting in the sense that, you know, when we asked people in the in our, I guess, October poll going into the election, what issues were, you know, would be on their mind mm-hmm. going into the, you know, to vote. Right. As a standalone item, property taxes scored reasonably high. Yeah. Right. But when asked to say what was most important, it really slid pretty far down on the list. Right. And so there is a sense in which, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that people don't care about their property taxes. And if, you know, you're in a certain social circle, social milieu of property owners and the issue of taxes come up, I mean, people would own, you know, that own their home will be pretty quick to complain about property taxes in my anecdotal experience. But it's not – it's interesting that it's it's not quite as prominent and salient in public opinion as it is among elites right now. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I – At least as measure, as we measure it. You know, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, I think it's one of those things that the, the impact of, you know, inflation in combination with the fact that, you know, Texas's property values have, you know, even though they've cooled, they certainly are still – have still increased, you know, dramatically year over year, you know, even if you want to say for the last couple of years or the last decade or whatever time frame right. you want to put on it. I mean, part of this is like there's something just so systemic about this, right, which is just ultimately, you know, there is something – you know, systemic in two ways. I mean that one. You know, Republicans are always going to want to try to find ways to cut taxes. It's just hard to do it in Texas. Right. Right. There's only a couple points of leverage that they have to really address this, and and they can't be too aggressive because they have so few points of leverage, and the state is so big. Like, right. Just ultimately, we have a big budget. You know, um, and so and so there's that kind of there's that kind of piece of it. You know, the, the the desire to constantly you know be able to show that you're you know fighting the good fight on taxes. You know, makes makes this sort of a perpetual issue. At the right. same time, you know, I think Texans are dissatisfied with their property taxes because it is the main form of taxes. And I mean, you get yeah. like, like, look, I, you know, I don't really care what the system is. I mean, to be honest, but there's a public opinion point of this, which is like, it's just so obvious. Which is like, look, if you're going to attach basically people's taxes to something they can't control, you're going to get conflict, right? Because right. their home value goes up, their income stays the same. All of a sudden, they're at a loss, and who do they blame? Well, they've got to blame the some government, right? That, that's, right? that's loving it. And the thing is, we've seen this. So, like, I mean, you know, at the end of the last session in October 2021, we asked people at the end of the, all the last sessions, right, basically to rate the legislature and state leaders on a, on a list of issues. I think we did about 12 issues. Yeah. And property taxes was third from the bottom overall. Only 20% of Texans gave uh, the legislature and state leaders job uh, an approving. Uh, review on their handling right. of property taxes, slightly higher than the electric grid, 18%, slightly higher than the foster care system, 15%. Right. So if you think about how all, I mean, again, I hope people listening to this know, if you think about all the troubles we've had in the state's foster care system, they got 15% approval for handling of that. Property taxes, 20. Among Republicans, it was only 29%. Yeah. And so that's the thing. I mean, there is there is space here to improve, and there's also obviously an issue that I think they can look at the yeah. electorate and say this is this is kind of something we have to do something. Right. I mean, yeah, it, it's an exposed nerve. It may not be a nerve in a place that you know people are always are you know noticing all the time, but if you hit it, well, and the, prob- the response is negative. Well, and the it's problem is point. it's a systematically exposed nerve, and it's not easy to fix. I right. mean, that's really the hard part. And the other piece of public opinion that we, we just just mentioned here is when we do ask people about you know these sort of efforts to. To lower their property taxes and it's kind of say, you know, there's always a number that floats around. Well, the average homeowner will save X amount of us. We might ask in a poll, you know, basically, do you think this will make a difference to most Texans? Like, would this make a difference? And we don't ask about you because there's a lot of specifics. Right. But the idea is like, does this seem like something this would affect? And generally the answer is not really. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, when you're talking about like, well, you know, you're gonna say, you know, you're gonna save uh $124, you know, over the course of the year, you say, well, that's twelve dollars a month. Yeah. Maybe. That's not a lot, you know. Right. And I and I think that. Um, so just this is why it never leaves the agenda in some ways, right? And 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 I guess in terms of the mechanics of this, the governor was not especially specific either in this or in. I don't want to call it a budget because it was more of a budget proposal that he issued in conjunction with the speech. Right. Um, you know, was not very specific about this. Kind of waved at you know fixing compression and you know. Well, that's the thing. I mean. Very com- which is a very complicated. I, I love I love these things because I mean because we do this for a living, so I have a, an excuse to look into it when the time comes. But like I mean, this is 
this gets complicated pretty quick and it can touch. Yeah. And the thing is, it's not even that it's it's complicated in and of itself. And then depending on the vehicle by which they go to do it, it automatically has all these other tentacles that end up becoming also right. really complicated. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I think what the lieutenant governor, you know, to sort of has talked about, I think most prominently, although not exclusively to be fair to him, but that one of the things he thinks ought to be considered in conjunction with, you know, managing all this complexity of yeah. the linkage to school funding and things like and assessments and things like this, you know, has been raising the the, the homeowner exempt uh, the homestead exemption by a pretty good bit. And I, it was interesting to me that that the governor did not speak to that directly. Yeah, and I mean, or, I, not even speaking to that idea directly. Yeah, and I mean, that's one of those interesting things because when they did that at the very end of the last session, largely probably in response to some of the polling that we're, we're talking, not our polling, but their general yeah, sense right. of this in the atmosphere that there was dissatisfaction. I mean, it wasn't necessarily clear before we got through this cycle and this new budget estimate that they even had the money to like continue paying for it. Right. And so, I mean, just so just as an aside, like, I mean, yeah, they the homestead section for 25 to 40. They basically covered it more or less through the biennium, and then it was kind of an open question. Yeah, they've got the money now, but the idea that, like, well, let's go from 40 to 75, it doesn't mean that they've got right. this money in perpetuity going forward. Well, and, and it speaks to, you know, the question hovering over this more broadly that we've raised in here is that, you know, if you're inviting recurring costs on this moving forward – Everybody, I think, is, has been urged by the controller and by, you know, anybody who kind of knows what they're talking about, you know, not to, to consider this very much a one-time shot, right? right? And so, all right. So moving on, I would say that, you know, having said there weren't a lot of big surprises, yeah. I was a little surprised at the elevation and the pride of, and the kind of pride of place uh, given to the end, you know, to the declaration mm -hmm. of the, the, the item saying that, you know, the end of COVID restrictions should be would be one of the emergency items. Now, you know, I don't want to, you know, it, it's not inconsistent with where the governor has been on COVID. It's certainly tied into, you know, the the governor saying that he's not going to end this, you know, the, the disaster declarations related to COVID mm -hmm. until the legislature acts on making sure that mm -hmm. local governments can't, you know, act in, in, in ways that are, you know, not desired well, by well, the governor and his allies. And he's it's a way of signaling that he wants the legislature to act. And I realize, you know, of course, you know, there's the awkwardness of, of President Biden having already yeah. signaled that national emergency conditions will be ended in May. So I, I get all that. But I, you know, it was pretty odd to have that be the second item. I It just struck me as a little, I, I was a little surprised at the moment. I'm not surprised by the position, but I am yeah. surprised by where it sat in the speech, and and I, I've kind of felt like this could have very easily not been an emergency item. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I would say the more I th look at it, it's like you know the the you know the power of hindsight. But like when I look at this, actually, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it provides. You know, we always talk about like you know, we're talking about like in the Ukraine and stuff. Like, what's Putin's off ramp? It's like, well, what's Abbott's off ramp from this thing? Yeah. And you know, the thing is, is that his disaster declaration is very different from Biden's, and that you know the sure. I, the idea here. And I just I just want to lay it out for people. What's sort of interesting about this is that you know ultimately the governor declares a disaster declaration, and the idea is is that he's supposed to do that so that he can circumvent laws in order to address the disaster. Right. In this case, the governor took the disaster declaration as a way to prevent local entities, basically counties, local municipalities, from engaging in COVID restrictions and precautions. And yeah. I'm just going to say- And to use them as a foil. Yeah. And so it's sort of the thing where, you know, it's, it's always already, it was always a very strange use of a disaster declaration. Now, I should point right. out the legislature could end his disaster declaration at any time it wanted, but, you know, just on its own and say, hey, sure. you know, that's not how this works. But the issue here is like, this is a slam dunk for everybody. I mean, somebody's, you know, I think the extent to which, you know, COVID restrictions and and what governments did during the COVID pandemic is still out there in the atmosphere. It's much more active on the right, right. than on the left. The sure. left, I mean, weird, some weird, strange ways, the left has kind of moved on. Yeah. You know, and, and the right has moved on from COVID for sure, but they haven't moved on from the government restrictions. So here, everybody gets to say, you know, no, Abbott didn't have, you know, I, mean, I could see, you know, I mean, again, yeah. if we said multiple times, we don't expect Abbott to run for president. And I still hold that. But if you'd imagine a situation in which, you know, there's some sort of debate and you've got Abbott up there and you've got DeSantis and you've got Trump and they're all talking about what they did. Abbott doesn't want this multi-year COVID emergency declaration hanging over his head any yeah. longer. And so he's ending this on his terms and in a way that I think every member, every Republican member of the legislature will say, yeah, me too.
I'm yeah, sure. I mean, it's an easy, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of the other things on here that's, you know, it's a pretty easy Republican vote. I, you know, and, and look, I, you know, to move on, I think it also along the lines of that explanation. It does raise it. It also, it also, yeah, I mean, it. Ra- I, I still think it raises it in kind of a funny yeah, way. Yeah, no, I agree. Which there are a lot of people kind of going, I thought that was over. I think, know. you know, I think, you know, just, just to be like real qualitative here, you know, I think it does reflect a certain amount of, you know, uh, I think, you know, reticence and careful approach on the part of the Abbott people often to sort of where he's exposed. Yeah. And I think that this, the fact that this was seen here, and to your point, like we talked about it when Biden uh, announced the end of the, of the Ameri- of the right. you know, national disaster, region, like what an odd place that put Texas in and the governor and yeah. all this stuff. And so it may be, a, it may be a little bit of an overshot, but it's an understandable one maybe. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe this is one of the things that, you know, I would expect that the legislature could move on. Yeah. You know, fairly easily in an emergency item early on. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if this, if that, if that turns out to be true. We'll put a pin on that. You know, in the look and in the structure of the speech, um, it was a good transition into mm-hmm. the next item, which was education freedom, quote unquote, which right. is ultimately, you know, the umbrella concept for a whole lot of d- touch points in what we've discussed in the podcast and, uh, as the GOP's kind of play to disrupt democratic ownership of the issue and to highlight certain things about about higher, about education and and you know that effort was ongoing in the speech and so there was a definitely kind of a freedom based transition on that and you know obviously with the, the 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 education issue and education freedom this is an area that you know Interesting. I mean, it's very. This effort is very interesting in ways yeah. that we've talked about. It manifested in the speech, and that, as I read it, this was the longest. This cluster of issues and subjects and rhetoric got the most real estate in the speech. Yeah, and I mean, I've been kind as, of, as one subject, right? There were themes, but yeah, and I mean, to me, like the way that I'm sort of. I mean, there's a lot of ways to understand this focus on education. You know, there's a lot of right. ways we could kind of lay it out. But I mean, I think one of the ways that I keep coming back to is, you know, the way that this sort of cluster of education issues is being presented and prioritized. I think it has a really clear target, which is, you know, it's to target conservative and concerning conservative leading parents and even non-parents in suburban areas. Yeah. You know, the cities are kind of doing what the cities are doing. The suburbs are doing what they're doing. I mean, the rural parts are doing what they're doing. And that both in, that, that involves both, I would say, in education and also politically, right? Yeah. And we're talking about different places. And the suburbs are where this conflict is playing out. And, and I think, you know, there's two things here. I think, one, you can see that this is an issue that, again, mobilizes the type of people that Republicans want to mobilize, you know, in an increasingly competitive right. state. Um, and so I think that's you know, a very important part of this. But I also think there's, a, this is something else, and I don't know if I've talked to you about this, I've talked to some other people about this, but to the extent that Republicans have found success on this issue and they found a lot of success taking over like school board seats and some, some conservative areas, I think it behooves Republican state leaders to put some some guardrails around what these efforts look like. Yeah. Because, you know, to the extent that, you know, the people who kind of like got funded by outside sources to, you know, insane degrees got themselves on, on school boards, well, what are they going to do now? And I think, you know, at this point and given where we are in this kind of discussion, it, it, it would probably, behoo- again, really behooves Republican state leaders to say, OK, this is what education freedom right. means. These are the rights of parents, because I don't think they want this to kind of be just like anything else left to every single ISD and their newly elected members. You well, know, yeah, I mean, I, it, I think there's exposure there. Yeah, I wonder. Um, I wonder. It's just an. It's a thought. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you know, it's a lot of a lot of unknowns here as this plays out. I think. Um, I was interested in the speech and the way that the the governor hit a lot of the. I was going to call them grace notes, but they're sort of discord notes. Uh-huh. You know that are central to this discussion and that are lined out much more specifically in the lieutenant governor's priorities. And the lieutenant governor's priorities are also very education heavy. Um, but, you know, there was, you know, I, I I thought that, you know, some of these references in the governor's speech were much less directly hot, but but still, you know, is still sounding, you know, like trying to resonate with the same chords. I mean, in terms of talking about curriculum and, and woke this yeah. and that, woke education, et cetera. And it was in there. Um, but again, not quite as... 
you know, not 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 nearly as hot as Lieutenant Governor I, has been. I think right? he's I think he's hitting trying to hit sort of the cent, the center point on this and, and, and you know center point in the Republican Party. In the well, yeah, I mean, I. No, I mean, look, I know what you mean. I kind of put this in the blog post, right? There, you know, on one hand, I mean, he does something that's different. I'm going to step back. Let's yeah. reframe this a little bit. Sure. I mean, look, to the extent that part of what is going on here that's kind of implied in what you were saying is that, or laid out in what you were saying, is that there is part of this effort to kind of uh, recode public education as a more is a better issue for Republicans to mobilize on, mm -hmm. has a certain amount of kind of anti-institutional animus towards public education. Yes. That is a critical of, you know, the failures during COVID or the difficulties in, in places, failures during COVID is measured by student achievement, et cetera, et cetera. You know, which made that, you know, that kind of transition step from COVID oh. in the speech useful, but then also it branches out into the hotter issues curriculum, you know, the woke education stuff that we've talked about in here a lot. But it also, um, you know, but the governor was also pretty clear at the beginning to do something that I think the lieutenant governor and some of the more, you know, sort of red meat activists on this don't do, mm -hmm. which is said, look, public education, our public education system is great. We've won right. a bunch of awards, you know, students in public schools will continue to be funded. And so to the extent that you're saying he's kind of was more balanced. I kind of get that. I think, well, there's that. And then the other thing I was going to say, you know, we did an open-ended question about, you know, the, the, at some point we did this recently, yeah. you know, about basically the most important issue facing public education to try to get a heat check just without any sort of, any sort of preconditions on what people are noticing is the issue. And part of it was to see, you know, what kind of curriculum concerns are people raising? And, you know, to the extent that like certainly conservative curriculum, you know, curriculum concerns about, you know, race and gender and how those issues are taught, was more prevalent than like liberal correct curriculum concerns, you know, about not enough of this kind of stuff. There was a really large share of, of people in that group who just were basically talking about like curriculum concerns in the context of reading, writing, and arithmetic. And yeah, like this, right. this idea, I mean, this is, in Texas, I think you're in a pretty okay spot if your view towards curriculum and education is this. Instead of saying, no, they shouldn't be talking about, I mean, like, I think you raised COVID. I think COVID came on the heels of a lot of racial unrest that like the schools were trying to deal with and, right. and it became very public and messy. And then we've seen a backlash. But ultimately the idea of like, well, you know, let's not talk about slavery or let's not talk about these issues. is kind of like, there's a little bit of a non-starter there. I just think in the public. But if you flip that and say, listen, you know what education is for? It's to teach kids about reading, writing and arithmetic and making a living and making a, yeah sure and making a living full stop anything that's beyond that is not the domain of school right and the thing is that is something that not only resonates with certain conservative parents and allows you to kind of sort of say yeah yeah we agree right. with you on that stuff but it also i think extends that argument in a way that sounds better to other people even out you know who don't have kids in the right. education system and have seen test scores struggling and, and experience especially parents yeah and my even if you're not a parent have seen stories about just well, and you know, but a this, lot of noise in the system I mean, to, to be, their eyes. And again, this isn't cynical because we love politics. But like, you know, if you're like in your 50s, 60s, 70s, your kids are way, way out of school, and you're kind of like, this is in the ether, though. Yeah. This idea of like, wait, wait, what are they? Drag shows? Right. You know, what's in the library? And the governor and literally, hey, we need to focus on reading, writing, and arithmetic to keep our schools great. It's like right. that's a very that's a and much then more targeting the anti woke thing a little more narrow cast, yeah. which is easier to and do. And so that's a much more refined, it's like version two point Right. You know, it's not what we're focusing on. I mean, it's not what we're not gonna focus on anymore. It's what we are focusing on. And I think on. that dynamic with the governor, which you see in the speech, is you know, it's an institutional factor here. Yeah. Right. I mean the governor is as the governor, you know, and the figurehead is much more likely to be at least nominally more attentive to, you know, broadcasting compared to narrow casting. Right. And that's why the narrow cast messages are are a little more are a little more encoded. Yeah. Right. So all right, so uh, adjacent to this the next sort of item also education related but in a very purposive way was the priority of making schools safer. Um, you know, it's been widely noted that the governor didn't mention the Uvalde mass shooting directly in any way. Um, and there's no, you know, there was no, but there was no, there was no mention of guns in any direction. Yeah. In any, in any meaningful way. So other than, you know, in, in a law, in a law and order context, which we'll, we'll touch on in a minute. So I think no big surprises here. I mean, I think, you know, if, if you really want to parse this and, and some of this is in the, is in the, is in the post, 
you know, we know that school safety is one of the areas where, you know, there's not a lot of partisan difference. You know, more intense partisans, you know, Democrats lean a lot more in the direction of looking at the weapon used by the shooter. Republicans tend to lean, you know, not not see that as a as a as an important factor, lean more towards school safety, mental health. And in terms of the Uvalde shooting itself, you know, the big point of consensus is police response. And that kind of washes a lot of this out. Yeah, I mean, really, you know, school safety is, you know, we'll see what they do and we'll see how they interpret it. Right. I mean, I think, you know, part of it is to your point, you know, there's no there's no critical mass in the Republican Party to address guns. The reality is, even though, you know, most people in Texas, including most Republicans, blame the response of police. You know, the idea that the response to the mass shooting in school would be to like, you know, deal with the doors on the schools. Like this, we've had this conversation before. The right. Lieutenant Governor had talked about hardening schools in response to the last mass shooting in schools, you know, five years ago. I mean, we've, you know, this is this is sort of par for the course. I mean, the interesting thing to me about this, and I'm curious to see how they end up doing it is, you know, how much of this is about hardening the schools and how much of this is about the mental health. Yeah. And part of it is just because the mental health piece is hard. The school piece is real expensive. Right. And and there's and there's a movement on both. And what I what I suspect is that we'll see some money thrown at both of those things, but it'll be relatively incremental compared to some of the money we'll see we'll see thrown elsewhere. Well that's well that's exactly right. I mean that's the point you know, I mean that's the thing that I think that I think is interesting. Whenever you hear a number being thrown out going forward about, oh, we're you know, the legislature's considering spending this many, you know, millions of dollars on school safety upgrades, you know, you gotta go and sort of say, okay, wait, how many campuses do we have in the state of Texas? You know, right. like Yeah, the usual school thing. And it's kinda it's like, just... yeah, you know, it may sound like a lot and it may be very incremental. And, you know, it's it's there's a lot more, you know, like most things, when you start looking at the building codes and where they are, yeah. it's a lot more complicated and and there's a lot of and, and there's a lot of conflicting, you know, stakeholders in that space. So the next the 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 other the next uh, uh, emergency item was ending revolving door bail. Um, you know, partially not wholly in response to attempts by Harris County, though you know Dallas as well, to deal with issues in their bail system. Some of this was driven by some court decisions. Speaks to you know the longstanding debate about policing. You know you referenced the the, the summer of 2020 and 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 activism around policing and race. Um, you know I, there was nothing too surprising about here. I mean I'll you know I can't remember who it was. Somebody on Twitter noticed I didn't have I didn't have Harris County on the bingo sheet, and yeah, I absolutely should have. But it didn't take them long to call out Harris County in particular, which yeah. the governor did. Um, you know, I would say that stepping back and and I think you and I, you know, chatted about this the night of the, uh, as the speech was going on in real time, you know, the governor did not focus on, you know, a big crime item, although that's what this is, but there was a definite taste of, you know, sort of GOP law and order approach in this speech. A few, you know, instances of calling for increased punishment. Yeah. You know, the issue of of people being ac- accused of violent crimes being let out on bail. I mean, that's we've that was in the speech last time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was kind of a there was a law and order move that hovered over this. I mean, support for the, you know, and this was an area where the governor was in line with the lieutenant governor in terms of supporting mandatory 10 year penalties for, you know, I think felonies create, you know, crimes committed with a gun. I think it was felonies um, using a gun. And that that was, we should say, what we heard about guns in this. Right. Um, so, I, you know, this seemed like an interesting set piece. So it, it will also be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. This is, it definitely plays on the law and order themes, but it does it really, really in a – I mean, I think I, I'll add into this kind of like you know, lieutenant governor's emergent, or, uh, priority legislation on removing district attorneys who don't follow the right. law. I mean, there's sort of a – you know, law and order contra local enforcement. Yeah, I think that's right. Of, and 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 the governor's speech did have not you know not not specific references to those officials or that those bills, yeah. but had had a reference to local officials not enforcing this, the law, et cetera. This area is really interesting to me. I mean, I think they're going to you know the legislature is going to do what it's going to do, and I can imagine them kind of you know clamping down a little bit on efforts to sort of you know let's say reform, work on loosen whatever word you want to use the cash bail system right. but it's interesting in the sense that this definitely you know based on polling that we've done generally like it definitely kind of 
definitely flies in the wrong in the opposite direction of where public opinion has been going with respect right. to like bail practices for like misdemeanors and non-violent defendants and for people who just simply yeah. can't afford bail. I mean, one of the things about the way that like in this, I mean, this was one of the pieces that kind of stuck out to me in the little bit of speech because it almost had a little bit of a he doth protest too much element to it. It's like, you know, tell me all the murders and the mayhem caused by the people yeah. out on the bail. And it's like, yeah, but like that's not really like what a lot of these discussions are about. So I'm kind of curious to see. Right. Well, you know, I mean, how where this goes. It's why Harris County is a good point for this. There's yeah. been a lot of there has been a lot of discussion on those lines in Harris County, yes. particularly among Republicans and and but but again, also, you know, you're not you don't have to be a Republican to notice that you know, there have been some high-profile cases in mm -hmm. Harris County. It's been an issue. Um It's one of those like things though where it's like, I mean, anyway, there's like a social science thing like here. It's like, you're like, yes, there are, you know, there are people who are out on bail for some kind of, you know, crime who commit other crimes. Like there are also just people not out on bail who commit all kinds of crimes. Like right. it's sort of and, like, and people not out on bail who have not been convicted of anything because they can't afford to get out. So, right. And yeah, exactly. You know, there's so, a yeah. You know, it's a it's it's a, it's it's complicated there, but I, and I do think that there's. Uh, you know, the, the, it's going to be interesting to see where the legislature moves. And I, and just to hit on something you mentioned before we move on, I mean, it is one of those interesting turns where, you know, if you looked at, you know, the 2010s, mm -hmm. what you saw was a really interesting dynamic in terms of bipartisan at the, you know, kind of opposite ends of the political spectrum. And often when people say, well, the people at the, you know, opposite ends are kind of more alike than similar, I always think that's bullshit. Yeah. But in this case, it's not because they were more alike, but there was interesting coalition work between social criminal justice forces on the left and on the right that was percolating through the decade that really has hit a wall. Now. And I thought about this, sort of the, you know, the libertarians on the right and the social progressives on the left had found common cause. And even some conservative, I mean, I think some yeah. fiscally conservative people on the right said, hey, this costs a lot of money. Yeah. The other thing, I'll just point this out, we can move on from this. But like, you know, it's really interesting in the sense that, you know, at a point in which, you know, Republicans are sort of keep raising the issue of law and order, and especially in Texas's, you know, major cities and, and lax enforcement, all this stuff, you know, these places are still under a revenue cap. Right. So, I mean, there are not unlimited resources in these counties to actually go and fight crime, to prosecute every case, yeah. to put people in safe conditions in jails and prison. Like, just throwing that out there. You well, know? And, there, and there's, you and, know, and there's, yeah, there's something interesting about how people have developed a reflex whenever something sort of disrupts the social order, you know, to point to, well, this is about there not being enough police. This is about that whole discussion. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had this car rally thing in right. Austin over the weekend, you know, and you would think that this was like a homegrown thing that happened in Austin because all these muscle car drivers. They knew. You know, knew that, you know, Austin was under police. And it's absurd. Yes. Right. I mean, this thing is a phenomenon. It's been going on all over the country for right. a few years. I mean, it's just it's just ludicrous, frankly. But all right. Final item. Oh, no, actually, second to the last item. <laughs> How can we forget this? And, and this is one of those things where I, I understand, you know, doing more to secure the board, our border, making border security an emergency item. No way border security could not be an emergency item. Slam dunk. But it also, you know, and we beat this to death. We say on this podcast a million times about, you know, the centrality of, of, of border security to the Republican political psyche in the state, particularly, you know, both voters and elites. Um you know, but, you know, you have to flag emergency item. This could also be this is something where, you know, there's no will to disagree with this emergency item that I've seen within the governing coalition. I think we mentioned last week, both preliminary budgets in not only maintain the incredible increase in border security spending mm -hmm. that we've seen uh, over the last biennium or, you know, if you go back even the last about three biennia, um, but there's even a something of a of an increase. So, you know, there's not this emergency I think is will this is an emergency will be well received. You know, one thing I'm 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 sort of and I'm sort of noticing as we talk about this, as we always do, you know, some things. And one thing about this that's interesting, and I always think about slight adjustments that, you know, about the rhetoric and the way yeah. and you can see usually, you know, there's an evolution that makes sense. You know, one of the things that I think is really seemingly smart from a political standpoint about again, this real increased focus on the border and specifically the border, is that it gets Texas Republicans out of legislating undocumented immigrants and the people they know 
in other parts of the state. Right. And if you think about some of the discussions we've had about sanctuary cities for years and about, yeah. you know, show me your papers laws and things like, we're not talking about that now. Right. We're talking about securing the border. And that's something that not only do, you know, Republicans almost unanimously agree with and support, you know, to the, you know, basically to whatever extreme you can find. You also have a ton of independents and you're going to have a significant share of Democrats who are going right. to say, yeah, you know, we need a secure border. Not yet. Non-trivial minority of Democrats. And that's a pretty, and I say, but like, you know, we were having serious discussions about, again, what police, what rights police officers had and whether they should enforce federal immigration laws. And that was something that really brought that close, close to home. And it's interesting now right. thinking about this that we really have is like, no, let's look down well, south yeah, a little and, more. And the longer term history of that in terms of when, when border security and immigration are, you know, Sometimes right. seen as conjun in conjunction, and other times, you know, one tries to separate it. We've seen that fluctuate a few yeah. times. And I think you're right. There is something kind of interesting going on with that. But it may have to do with the migration pattern. But, yeah. Um, so you know, border security is kind in some ways. It's stepping back and again looking at the structure of the speech again. It's kind of the second, the center of the center of gravity of the bottom of the speech. Yeah. Because the transition to border security really is within the rubric of that law and order theme right. that we talked about in the previous point. And then it, it follows over into the, the final emergency item, which is addressing the fentanyl crisis, which is real. And, and, you know, there are numbers out there and this is getting a lot of national media attention yeah, today, even. Um, uh, but also, you know, for the governor was squarely framed in the context of border security the flow of illegal drugs across the border, um, you know, the role of the border flows in 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 feeding the fentanyl crisis. You know, the fentanyl, uh, uh, you know, uh, confiscations. You know, mm -hmm. have been one of the the metrics that that right. uh, sometimes, in odd ways, that the that the Abbott administration has used to to justify Operation Lone Star. Um, but you know, to be fair, the the governor has also has also been a little bit upfront in a, in a way that I think surprised some people about making Narcan about Narcan availability and funding an expanded Narcan availability problem uh, uh, program in the state, et cetera. Yeah, which had run out of funding earlier this year. Right. And so and so I think I, 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 I think we'll probably see that happen. So so that kind of gives us the thing, you know, sort of exhausted from going through every item. You know, a few of the takeaways have I think kind of come up in yeah. this. I mean, again. More evidence that property tax reduction remains at the center of what's going on in the in yeah how they figure the out remainder how to do of that. the session and what's going to happen with that and yeah, the that, fact that something's going to happen yeah and how and how they figure out how to do it and what it looks like is kind of the big question but it's not whether it's right. going to happen yeah and not you know I mean I'm not sensing a ton of distance here until they really you know they'll get into the weeds and there'll be arguments about this but. To me, you know, the property tax reduction that they're going to pick is going to be the one that's going to pass both houses. Right. Um, right. You know, I, I think another thing that was interesting about the speech, and, you know, this kind of speaks to things that we've been thinking about a lot lately. It's really going to be in my bonnet to some degree, I guess. But, you know, Abbott does remain kind of the most prominent pro-economic development Republican in the state. I mean, yeah. you know, there, you know, it's interesting. He's now done two straight state of the state speeches with, you know, a factory in the background. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and there was lots of, of development, talk about economic development, credit claiming for the success in the state. And really now, like right, right at the beginning of the speech for the five minutes that people might be tuned in before they right. figure out that, wait, my show's not on. Like and that, that was, was, and that was very much consistent with what he did in the previous speech. And again, a lot of governors, I mean, you yeah. start with victory lap and, yeah. you know, there's been a lot of ground to take victory laps in Texas and the economy for, you know, given growth. Um, but you know, he went further. I mean, it was, it was kind of low key and it was only a line in the speech, but he did insert a plug for a successor program to chapter the chapter 13, uh, article 313 programs. And there wasn't the kind of slamming of woke business that we're seeing among a lot of legislators on Twitter that we're seeing certainly from the Lieutenant governor. Now that was safe for educators. And yeah, I mean, it was much I mean, more the, you know, the, the woke business was applied yeah. again to. You know, if you're going to take on an institution, you're going to say, what institution does Greg Abbott seem more enthusiastic about taking on in the, the battle against wokeness? Much more about public education and educational institutions, much less about business, where I think if you were to ask about the lieutenant governor, he's been pretty full-throated in both, and, and so is the Senate. And I think, you know, just we were talking about this earlier today, you know, 
and, and it seems like you know it's almost when you say that Abbott remains the most prominent sort of pro-economic development Republican, I say part of the thing that I think is sort of, you know, shifting underneath the sand, you kind of have to remember is I think we all have an assumption here that well, aren't all Republicans sort of pro-economic development. Right. And we say, well, you know, before we'd say, well, let's, 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 let's set off the few who are like kind of more concerned about, let's say like social issues about kind of grassroots activist right. kind of engagement. And that, you know, if you, and I think, you know, I would, I would encourage the listeners to think about, you know, yeah. like, it, do you still think that that assumption holds equally kind of across the Republican coalition the way you yeah. used to? I mean, I, 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 I put it differently. I think we used to think about it a little bit as an either or that, yeah. you know, you've got these forces in the Republican Party that are focused on this one thing and the other kind of thing is more or less fine. Yeah. You know, and that goes for either, yeah, whether, either it's, way, whether yeah. you're the social bucket person or the eco devo right. bucket. But now that the sort of social, you know, ideologically driven bucket seems to be sort of seeping into the other bucket. It's a different, it's, it's a different, different thing. Yeah. And that's kind of what we've looked about that a lot, at that a lot. That is one of, I think, the notable differences between, mm -hmm. you know, and it's both a bit of content, point of emphasis and tone mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the differences with the lieutenant governor. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, a couple of things specifically stuck out to me on that on the grid, you know, Patrick build the grid as a much higher priority in his announcement of both, you know, his priorities in the earlier speech and in uh, his, his first 30 bills. Um, and the governor was, didn't make it an emergency item, Right. talked about it a bit, talked about in general terms, wanting to generate more capacity, which is where the Lieutenant governor is, I think at this point in time and mm -hmm. has, has actually drawn a pretty, rhetorically strong line in terms of saying if there wasn't something about, you know, encouraging more, fostering more, generating capacity and building more capacity that, you know, you know, he'd think it required a special session, which since he can't declare a special session implies that, you know, he would hold something hostage for that. Right. So, you know, a pretty blunt force bargaining statement on that. But the, you know, and look, we've all known that the lieutenant, that the governor has stuck by his earlier declaration that, yeah. We've solved this. Mm -hmm. And he's probably encouraged by the fact that clearly the Democrats wanted to make an issue of this in 2022 and it fizzled. Right. Right. And it fizzled in the face of, you know, no more recent stimulus. You know, it was also, and I, you know, we're always hesitant to mention this. I would also say that another notable difference was higher ed. Yeah. Um, the governor's tone was, again, uh, not full-throated, you know, not full-throated support for higher ed as an institution. Yeah. But he did talk more about vocational training, workforce preparation, which has been a big theme. He's doing it from a high-tech factory just right. outside Austin. It's been a big theme in the state. <laughs> um, and that has not been a – a Patrick has, has approached this much more aggressively in terms of ending tenure, uh, a, a more DeSantis-esque approach, if you will, in terms of trying to – intervene in curriculum and discussions of CRT. Yeah, but to your but to your point before, I mean, this just actually is another piece of how, you know, you might say that Abbott kind of remains the most, you know, sort of pro-eco dev kind of person right. in the ether because, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, and again, we're sitting here at a university, I know that, acknowledged, right? right? But the reality is, is that, you know, Texas has some pretty fine institutions of higher learning. They, you know, they contribute pretty heavily to the economic environments of the places right. they are. And the truth is, Texas is not going to have a competitive higher education system without tenure when every other university in the country has tenure. And so that's just, you know, that's just one of those things where, you know, it's 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 minor. But like, I think the reality is the people who are, you know, in Abbott's ear on this or the people who are in yeah. legislators ear on this, there are a lot of them. And they're saying, yeah, like, let's just let's right. let's pump the brakes here. But it doesn't hurt Patrick to put it out there. To have the emergence, you know, have have the priority item, to have it be talked about, to have him be at the forefront of it, and you know whether he succeeds this session in doing something, they do something right. in between tenure review or whatever, or it becomes a multi-session thing, or he drops it. Well, they've yeah, they've you know, I mean, higher education institutions are a good foil in this political environment. So I'm not, you know, I mean, this is consistent with what we've seen before, um, but I, you know, I think it is notable. Um, that 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 the approach has been different, right? So, anything else stick out to you, stick out to you in terms of difference? You know, kind of notable differences. 
You know, I mean, I'll just say, you know, in thinking about the grid, you know, I do think it's interesting to think about the institutional dynamics and the fact of, you know, who gets to who gets to own what when. You know, I yeah. think Abbott's sort of, you know, Abbott's obviously in the executive branch. I mean, technically Patrick is too, but I mean, it's sort of right. you know, whatever. But like, but I mean, you know, but Abbott ultimately is the one who has to execute, you know, basically the running of the state. And, you know, the PUC are his appointees. They're right. looking over ERCOT. And so on the one hand, you know, it's kind of interesting to think about, you know, I try to, I don't have an answer to this, but I'm thinking a lot about, you know, what do each see as like, you know, the 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 rewards and the exposure with respect to acting or not acting. It's clear that the lieutenant governor see that like there is either some reward or some exposure out there that requires him to keep pushing this forward. And clearly the governor has a different view of this. And that's the kind of something I'm just trying to like Well, you know, I mean, to out. me the question is... And I, you know, whatever, I, I think I know what the answer to this is, but I'm not <laughs> informed on it. You know, how much does the, does the lieutenant governor get the credit for knowing that he can probably push a bill, push some of these bills that are, you know, that threaten the, you know, the functionality of higher ed as an institution within the political economy, mm-hmm. knowing that somebody else is going, either the House is not going to take this bill up. Which right. Right. Which I think is probably pretty likely based on the signals that I've seen, yeah. or that the governor may very well, you know, reg- you know, probably reluctantly, but would veto it, yeah, you know, in in the interest of economic development and you know, there's got to be a better way, kind of thing. Um, I think that's probably floating around out there, but but clearly, I mean, it it, it does underline the dynamic we talked about, you know, and it's kind of the. In, in that there is more tension between the intensity of, you know, anti-wokeness, the ideological cultural battles in the, you know, that are being fought by some factions of the party and the economic development perspective that's there. And we're, you know, it, it's the most important topic, I think, going on in the, in the, leg- it's, it's the most, I shouldn't say important, most interesting topic, I think, going on in terms of the long-term politics. Yeah, it's, 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 it's probably, you know, I mean, in, in the sense of like the, the overall, as we talk about the party system, yeah. it's probably one of the most consequential things going on. Yeah, I mean, on. It's, and, and, you know, and look for the, you know, I mean, it's important for the state's economy and the political economy of the state that if, I mean, imagine a world in which, you know, you were talking about guardrails earlier. Mm-hmm. Some of these guardrails are just not there on right. some of this. And Texas were to become the first state to, you know, fundamentally, you know, uh, pat, you know, pass laws that fundamentally dictate curriculum in higher education or, you know, materially ends tenure. I mean, it would it would be a big deal. <laughs> yeah, it would be very big you know? deal. <laughs> you know, and so I think that the you know, we've talked about the coalition shifting here, and I think it, you're right. In the party system, it has a lot of implications for the party system. But there are some real practical things going on here, too, that I think I, are going to be very interesting to see debated in open court, right, in, in the course of the session. Yes. On that, uh, thanks to Josh for being here. Good luck to the FC this weekend. Um Thanks again to our excellent production team in the Dev Studio in the College of Liberal Arts here at UT Austin. Uh, A lot of the data that we've discussed today can be found at texaspolitics.utexas.edu as always. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another Second Reading podcast. And I think next week's podcast will have some real interesting surprises, I think. Ooh, you're probably right. (laughs) So with that, thanks for listening. Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.